The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop recalibrating your black helicopter detector and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 191 with guest Jimmy Nilsson, recorded live Thursday, August 17th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who plans to keep warm this winter with a stockpile of Dell laptop batteries, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. I'm here in uh, New London, Connecticut, Plop Studios, as I usually am. Uh, Richard Campbell, my co-host, of course, you know him. You love him. He's out there in a clean, dry office in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hi, Richard. Hey there. An office is good. I love my dining room table, but I didn't want to love it for four months. <laughs> it's nice to be back where I'm supposed to be. Good to have you back, buddy. Well, Richard, this is like traveling season again for us. We did the road trip last year in the fall, and it's not quite as hectic this fall, but we're going to be all over the map here pretty oh, soon. Oh, you bet. I mean, I'm literally leaving in a few days for Kuala Lumpur and TechEd Asia, mm -hmm. but we're going to be together in, uh, I guess, in October, second week of October in Bulgaria. Yeah, Bulgaria is uh, DevReach. It's a new uh, show there. And uh, the Telerik guys, uh, they're, you know, are from Bulgaria. That's their their territory. And uh, October 9th and 10th, if you want to read about it, you can go to devreach.com. I'm surprised at the uh, quality of speakers they have there, too. Very, it's, it's quite a lineup. You know, Steve Forte and I have been working with them to put together the show. And Ted Neward signed on. And, of course, with Telerik being involved, how could we resist? Of One course. Of our, our nearest and dearest sponsors said, uh, we're going to their hometown. We just had to go out and, and put together some shows and have some fun with them. It's going to be awesome. So devreach.com. Also, the Tulsa Tech Fest is going to be in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Saturday, October 14th. You can go to www.tulsatechfest.com. And we're going to be there as well. Right. I bet we'll still be jet lagged from Bulgaria, but we'll do our best yeah. and uh, have some fun in Oklahoma. Finally, in November, of course, we're going to be at TechEd uh, Europe, TechEd Developer Europe, I should say, in Barcelona. And uh, there's a Shrinkster HHH for that, but Shrinkster is down right now, so we don't know what the status of Shrinkster is. But you can get there by tinyurl.com slash FC6BV. And uh, that's the, the, the homepage for TechEd. And that is going to be November 7th through 10th, which also coincides with Dev Connections in Las Vegas, which is going to be one of the biggest Dev Connections ever. And uh, I'm going to have to miss that. So Mark Dunn is taking my place at Dev Connections. And uh, we'll be over there doing .NET Rocks on the floor, on the stage, 
all over that show. And uh, <laughs> But I guess that brings us to the sweepstakes, too, doesn't it? Yes, it does. we're not going alone. That's right. We're inviting, uh, we're, we're giving away a ticket to TechEd Barcelona, Barcelona, Spain, TechEd developer. Uh, not only the ticket, but the plane trip and the hotel, all for you. So if you want to come party with us in Barcelona, what you got to do is you got to go to .netrocks.com slash Barcelona or just click on the big Barcelona graphic there on our homepage. All we want to do is we want to collect some demographic data from you. It's really only a few questions. It's not bad. And uh, you get one entry per email address per week. Each week you have to answer a question about the current week's show some detail about the show. So this week it's about Jimmy Nilsson and we'll draw a winner every week. And those winners get their choice of swag from our useless crap store, of course. And on October 24th, we're going to pick a winner from all of those weekly winners, one lucky winner to go to Barcelona. Now, Richard, last week's question was who showed Robert Scoble the internet for the first time? And I know the answer to that one. It's a great story. I've heard it several times, and I know we've done it a few times on the show. Too many times, probably. It is... Carl uh, Franklin. Carl Franklin. That's right. <laughs> so we chose from the people who got the question right a random winner, and it's somebody whose name I'm finding a little hard to pronounce, but I'm going to give it a shot, uh, from Warsaw, Poland, Maja Siemienga. I think I got that right. Uh, Maja... Just uh, we're going to send you an email, give you a congratulatory message, and congratulations. Of course, this week, the question is going to be different. Go see what it is, .netrocks.com slash Barcelona. You only have to answer the questions once, and uh, you only have to answer the demographic questions once anyway, and then you know you can go back every week and just answer the, the show question. Yeah. Hey, I got a great email. Okay. Ready for this? Sure. The subject is keep on trucking. So you got to know the guy was from Texas. <laughs> Howdy, that gentlemen. CB user from the 70s. There you go. Howdy, gentlemen. I am a .NET architect, a devoted listener of .NET Rocks, and I wanted to take a moment to thank you for the great content that you can consistently produce for the .NET community. I look forward to the blue unlistened dot on my iPod, ensuring a tolerable commute in Houston traffic. And hey, we spent some time in Houston traffic. We know... It yes, sucks. we did. It really does. It's terrible. In fact, that was the worst traffic on the whole road of trip, wasn't it? the whole road trip. Houston we were, was the toughest. We were trying to drive a mile, and yeah. and we were just completely gridlocked. Oh, and, and that was also where the uh, crazy cell phone trouble was. That's right. <laughs> Although all your episodes have been great, I wanted to comment specifically on the show with John Rauschenberger on VB6 Interop. Yeah, I know that was a while ago. When I saw that familiar blue dot, I wasn't particularly excited given the title, but the discussion evolved into some deep philosophical concepts that are key to understanding the differences between VB and C Sharp. As someone who has dealt primarily with VB Script in ASP Classic and C Sharp in .NET WinForms, the boundary between the two has always been a bit elusive to me. Hopefully, some of the blue badges took away your conclusion that there is significant value in differentiating VB and C Sharp. Different problem domains warrant different solution domains. I feel that the perspectives you provided give me the new dimension to problem solving in my line of work, and I will never again grimace at the title of a .NET rock show. No matter what the content, you guys are able to make it valuable and genuine. Thanks again, Scott Bateman, Houston, Texas. Scott, what a nice email. Thank you. Very thoughtful. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting show, as I recall, with John. That, that's not an obvious topic. But when we heard John talk about it at TechEd, yep. I, you and I were sitting together as usual. And I remember just nudging in and go, oh, we got to do that as a show. Yeah, that was really an important thing. Yeah. Yeah. Goes to show, if you got uh, got any ideas for shows or if you uh, have overheard a great conversation with, between a couple of people, get them in touch with us. We'd like to... Uh, like to spread the love. And we'd like to spread the love to Scott by sending him a .NET Rocks mug, wouldn't we, Richard? Absolutely. All right. Congrats, Scott. And the uh, what I really like about today's show is this show is totally guest-driven. It all started way back earlier in the year with Jean-Paul Boudou and the discussion around test-driven development. And it just sort of cascaded. There was a bunch of emails and so forth. And finally... Finally, we've gone to the source 
That's right. Uh, uh, somebody suggested Jimmy Nilsson, and uh, we were right on that. So we called Jimmy, and we, you know, we emailed him, and we asked him if he would like to be on the show. And, of course, he said yes. Jimmy Nilsson owns and runs the Swedish consulting company Jan SKAB. He has written numerous technical articles and two books. He's also been training and speaking at conferences, but above everything else, he's a developer with almost 20 years of experience. You can check out his blog at www.jnsk.se slash weblog. Welcome, Jimmy. Thank you, Carl. It's good to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for, for inviting me. Uh, this latest book is called Applying Domain-Driven Design and Patterns. Uh, domain-driven design, a, a fascinating topic. Um, a lot of people are talking about it. Why don't you go ahead and introduce the topic and tell us why you're so passionate about it. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, I don't know if it is uh, something that comes with age, but um, I, I think <laughs> I have uh, learned that uh, what what really matters is, is the problem domain and uh, perhaps a little less the technology we are using we, we we can handle that but the problems the the problem domains that that is tricky day after day after day so the idea with domain driven design is to really focus on on the problem domain and uh, also trying to to build systems that are maintainable because the the code will uh, be very close to them the shows and abstractions, and uh, we try to catch the language of the problem domain, and uh, yeah, we, we try to keep uh, all this as a single unit, you could say. Now, is what's different from domain-driven design than just a series of steps that you would go through in the beginning of a process to to make sure that you really understand? Uh, the problem. I mean, is it just common sense, or is there some special magic that makes it uh, domain-driven design? Mm, I guess it is a lot of common sense, mostly. But you will uh, take it to the extreme, trying to keep your uh, your code as close as possible to the chosen abstractions, for example, and uh, trying to avoid the distractions as much as possible from the core of your solution. So, for example, infrastructure shouldn't uh, pollute your your core. Yeah, in uh, other words, you shouldn't let your tools dictate how you write exactly. your software. Yeah, that's, that's a good uh, description. Yeah, and uh, at least to me, when I look back, uh, I've, I've uh, done it uh, totally different in the past, and uh, I, I think I'm uh, going in the right direction when I'm trying to use domain-driven design and uh, live according to that. So what are some of the techniques that um, that you will use with, with this methodology? I'm uh, using test-driven development uh, very much. I'm uh, thinking about, uh, well, uh, sketching about the solution I think I'm going to use, and then I'm using test-driven development as my, as my test bench for uh, trying out my ideas about the model. So that is very central. But are, are, isn't there a whole lot of stuff that happens before you even write a, a test or a line of code? Um, yeah, talking to the users, of course, uh, very much, and uh, trying to um, not just uh, take what they say, but, uh, of course, uh, try to come up with something together with them. Uh, to find uh, good abstractions. And, but uh, I think most of us are doing that uh, a lot. Perhaps uh, in domain-driven design, you do it uh, extremely much. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to find a, um, you know, you know the, the, the key methodology here that separates a domain-driven uh, project from, uh, you know, a non. What are some of the things that you do um, in, in this process that make it domain-driven? Um. I'm not sure I can find a single sentence for saying that, but uh, I, I think it's a whole uh, mindset of uh, being much more extreme in trying out different uh, solutions instead of just going for the first one, for example, and being extremely much uh, very focused on the language 
that is being used uh, between the domain experts, trying okay. to capture that and uh, make it as crisp as possible. It's not a single little thing. It's more like uh, a whole uh, mindset, I would say. Jimmy, I can see going that approach using very much focus on the domain and domain's language. I'm yeah. always a big guy for building glossaries of terms around that domain. That that ultimately gets reflected in the code in the sense that the the methods and the classes are also oriented on the domain. You're not going to have generic programming type classes here. They're always going to be domain centric. They're going to use the nouns and the verbs of a given domain to describe all of the objects. Yeah, exactly. The, when you think you have the, captured the model day one, you definitely haven't. But, uh, but you start out with something, and uh, that model will be closely reflected in the code. And then when you learn more, you are not afraid of uh, changing the model. And when you change the model, the code should change as well, uh, and vice versa. Would it be safe to say that... Um... One of the core ideas is to create this abstraction layer that just deals with the domain that doesn't, you know, you, in other words, it doesn't have, you don't think about data, you don't think about, um, you know, accessing servers or service oriented or anything like that, but it's just about manipulating the items in the domain. Yeah, that's a good, another good description. Absolutely. Um, so instead of, uh, at least in my, in the beginning of my career, I worked a lot with databases, and I started out with tables pretty early on. But uh, I'm trying to to not do that any longer because, uh, well, we we get uh, too close to the technology too early, I think, in doing that. Of course, the trap there is that an awful lot of the times, mapping a domain object to a table works right up until it doesn't. And then you start breaking apart the domain object to make it a set of tables. Mm, and I yeah. guess you're advocating the opposite, saying stay with the domain. Absolutely. I, th I think it's trustworthy for me to say so, since I'm, I've been calling myself a DB guy for such a long time. But, uh, <laughs> me <yeah>. too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, what I find interesting about this is really it's uh, a set of policies around the idea that you've got to put the technology second, which, it, again, seems very common sense. But in yeah. reality, as developers, we love our technologies. We like to work in the skill set that we know well, the hammers that we're good with. And I noticed in your blog a great line here, the idea that SOA is the opposite of DDD recognizing that, that SOA very much is a set of technologies that are going around trying to find a problem to solve. And that really does mm -hmm. seem to me to be the opposite of domain-driven design, where instead of focusing on the problem and designing an app around the problem, SOA is a technical solution off looking for a problem. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid of that discussion, I think, because... Uh, uh, are, are we so um, sure about the, the meaning of SOA? I'm, I'm not so sure about that. It, it seems to still mean different things to different people. But I, I can definitely um, see, see your point, absolutely. Uh, I, I don't uh, think of them as opposites. Uh, it's different uh, things. Um, well, an SOA does solicit an awful lot of passion from people as well. Yeah, yeah, you know, it goes back and forth. I th I see it as a tool to address issues around a project. I, I don't see it really as that. You know, you have to build your whole app this way. Mm. I think I agree. That's uh, how I see it as well. Well, let's get into some of the meat and potatoes of this uh, of this technology. Um, starting from you know uh, some of the tools that you use and the and the things that you do in the project, you know, things that you discuss in your book? Um, first of all, I think uh, the mindset of using UML as a sketch is uh, something I'm trying to show in my book. And I, I saw um, that I got some uh, negative uh, crit crit critique about that on Amazon.com. Uh, he had a hard time seeing what I, I was uh, painting in the book, he said. A anyway, um, instead of uh, relying on... Uh, a tool for 
drawing the complete application in boxes and then just generating it. Uh, the domain-driven design approach is pretty code-centric, I would like to say. So uh, even though we probably we, we'd like to start out uh, sketching a little bit in UML, we are very quickly moving over to the code. So it's um, code as usual, and uh, it's not uh, a bad thing, I think. Okay. And I understand that the idea of wanting to be code-centric is just to capture that information as you learn about the domain in a way that you keep using it, whether that be tests or uh, or actual executing code that react to tests. Yeah, you're sort of using UML as a whiteboard, really, right? Exactly, yeah. Just uh, sketching, and uh, don't, I'm not having any intention to uh, keeping those sketches. Right. Well, and I buy the idea that you hand sketch them, even if some uh, somebody didn't quite understand that. That don't get caught up in the tool. It's exactly. it's just drawing out the picture. It's the cocktail napkin approach to thinking about a problem and then going around and implementing it. Oh, you're saying it's so good. <laughs> yeah. We hate you, exactly, Richard. That, that's uh, exactly my point, and I thought I was pretty clear in the book uh, explaining why I did it that way. But uh, well. Anyway, um, I wouldn't worry about negative comments on Amazon.com. Everybody gets them. (laughs) I would just say that. uh, I'm very happy with the comments so far, so I should. Yeah. You take it for what it really means, which is the guy read your book. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, he gave me a four out of five anyway, so. Right. Well, there you go. It wasn't too bad, I guess. (laughs) You should go go to his website and leave a bad comment there. So, do I come to your house and poop on your lawn? Come on. <laughs> Patterns obviously factor right into the title of the book and factor fairly seriously into this process. Maybe we'll talk about how patterns play in the whole DDD model. Yeah. Um, the, there is a pattern language uh, for domain-driven design. And uh, therefore, I thought uh, I should talk quite a lot about patterns. But uh, I'm not just talking about the domain-driven design patterns, but also I'm talking about uh, the classical um, Goff patterns a little bit. Right. And um, also quite a lot of patterns from Martin Fowler's patterns of enterprise application architecture, Um, especially in two different uh, ways. First of all, Martin talks about different uh, patterns for describing the overall structure of an application. And uh, in the Microsoft uh, community, I think it has been very common to use the pattern called the transaction script. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is pretty similar to batch uh, programs. You start from the beginning and you describe the little piece of the solution as a script. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. It, it's very efficient and a good solution for simple problems. But it's not scaling very well. But um, at least uh, as far as I know, all the example applications we have, we have seen from Microsoft are using that approach. I might be wrong about this uh, if something has happened recently, but as far as, far as I know. Well, it's interesting to me because you go back to the original batch processors, the whole kicks and and the, the the big mainframe approach, and I can't argue with you that that still is steeped in pretty much every program we we write for the business world, at least, where there is a series of steps here that culminates in a transaction to some kind of database that stores the results away. That's the job. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and. Um the common idea is that it won't scale when the complexity increases uh, a lot. You will get uh, duplicated code, uh, how hard you are trying to avoid it. Um, so anyway, that, that's one approach. And another approach is called table module, which is uh, using the record set pattern, which uh, the data set or and the data table in .NET framework is an implementation of and um, uh, wrapping the record set or the data table with a, a, a 
a table module. So when we are, we'd like to work with a specific uh, customer, for example, we ask the table module class for the customer with the ID of one. And then the table module uses the, the data table impl implementation for fulfilling that task. So we get, I think at least, a pretty much uh, table-oriented uh, paradigm in the core of our application when we are doing that. But um, if we have a decent implementation of the record set pattern, which we have in uh, .NET, uh, it's, it's a very efficient way of of moving forward. We get a lot of lot for free and uh, the tooling, all of the tooling, I think, in uh, Visual Studio is focused on that, at least uh, historically. Right. Are you a fan of the data table, Jimmy? I'm not. I'm not uh, a fan of that, uh, actually. I prefer uh, the third approach instead, uh, which Martin calls the, the domain model pattern. Yeah. Which is pretty much like uh, old uh, schoolbook uh, object orientation. Sure. Business and objects. If you, if you go that uh, route instead, uh, you will you will probably find, or you might find out that it is pretty complex uh, when, when you are using it in the real world. And then uh, domain-driven design comes as a, as a rescue for helping you out of how you should structure your, your domain model. You will get a lot of tools uh, or a lot of patterns for, for creating a decent domain model or describing your domain. What's the ultimate goal? Uh of you know you know core attributes of a really good domain model I think it should be extremely clear and uh, simple to understand for the reader of the code you should uh, see the domain in the in the code so uh, you should uh, be able to speak the language of of the code uh, with the domain expert, and they should almost be, be able to help you out with the coding or using the domain model. I think that's uh, a goal. Descriptive elements, in other words, na yeah. you know, n descriptive names. Yeah, but as you said, it's just common sense. We we have, we've been wanting that for a long time, but uh, I think we are uh, also quite used to failing, taking yeah. it the the whole way. Has the failure really been the tools not allowing us to model the domain particularly well, or is it us? I think it has been both. Um, when we and or when I was uh, using BB6, for example, I I tried it out a couple of times, but uh, the tooling was definitely in the way. It uh, didn't help. It actually created problems with the right. approach. Yeah. Well, you always got this need to deliver in a certain amount of time, and so if you're fighting your tool, you're slowing yourself down. Absolutely, so, yeah. I agree. So start making design changes for expediency's sake. What are some of the tools that you do do like, Microsoft and non-Microsoft? I think uh, we are seeing a, a huge shift right now at Microsoft regarding this whole thing. They are uh, talking a lot about uh, this recently, I think, and we are yeah. seeing new things coming out, such as uh, ADO.NET for Entities, for example. Right. Now, let's but, talk about this, ADO.NET for Entities. We haven't, we haven't even discussed this yet, Richard. Okay. Okay. Uh, I have to say that uh, I'm, I'm not too, uh, too much into it yet. But, uh, well, tell us what it a, is. I have a little story about it. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, all of a sudden, I heard about this uh, new thing coming out soon. And I got totally surprised because Microsoft had been talking about D-Link instead. Right. And uh, I blogged about it, uh, saying how strange Microsoft, um, they are having two similar similar frameworks for dealing with uh, mapping between relational databases and uh, object uh, models. And I couldn't really understand why. So, yeah, I wrote a little blog post about it. And just I think it was three hours later or something like that. 
every single trace of the ADO.NET for entities were gone. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. And I heard, uh, you know, that uh, shopper thing. It was uh, actually here in Sweden. The chopper thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Microsoft chopper. Tell us about that. Uh, it's coming. If you if you say something bad, it it will come and get you. Oh, the chopper! Oh, right. oh, the helicopter! The black yeah. helicopters! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I told a Microsoft friend about that, but he said, "No, no, you can't hear it. It's soundless." <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> You just anyway. look out the window and something hovers right from, you know, comes up <laughs> from the it, below. But it was actually pretty strange because they took out videos from Channel 9 and uh, yeah, lots of things. Wow. Thought, yeah. Um, so some someone did something he wasn't supposed to do, I guess. Um, anyway, that's, uh, that's history now. I think... Uh, Anders be kicking some ass over there. <laughs> well, the, and these things happen, right? Somebody posted something, and and it w- shouldn't have been posted, and so well, sure. pull it away again. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to me. Of course, I, I find Link fascinating too. And being a database guy, of course, I'm more resistant to it than most. But I, you really get the sense that Microsoft is groping in the dark for a better way to do data access. Yeah. But I think um, what I've seen so far about Link is extremely interesting, actually. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, they have been doing something pretty new, I think. They've, they've been trying do, to do something in this space for quite a while, but uh, yeah, perhaps they are getting it very, very good right now. It's hard to resist Anders. You know, he's a great mm-hmm. thinker about technology, and it, to actually have a mind like that aimed at the data access problem, I think we're going to get something new. It may be better or not, but it's certainly going to be innovative. Yeah, I would say that uh, Eric Mayer is uh, extremely important in this uh, Yeah, we we talked to him a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. uh, About Link and uh, languages. Yeah, he's a brilliant guy. Yeah, you should have him on the show again. We should do Uh, a full show with him, absolutely. I had him over here in Sweden a couple of months ago, and he gave a presentation. It, it was actually a really religious uh, thing going on. <laughs> a, a belief system around <laughs> data access? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Put your hands around on the screen. He, uh, I, I think in, in the audience we had mostly C++ guys and uh, Java guys, but he, he actually convinced them all that uh, they should go for VB9 instead. Wow. Um, wow, he convinced them? Yeah, I think so. Nah, at least for the moment. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to have to pause here for a second and mention that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET applications. Online at www.telerik.com. We're back with Jimmy Nelson talking about domain-driven design. Jimmy, we were just talking about Eric Meyer and, uh, and some of the things coming out of Redmond that they're beginning to think about this quite a bit more. Do you see any any tools on the horizon, you know, other than Link? Any 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 design tools? Any development tools, Microsoft or not? I think in Microsoft community is getting slowly, slowly are getting a little bit better at uh, looking at third-party things and uh, open source. So what what's what else is out there besides what Microsoft is offering? Uh, I've been using an Hibernate for quite some time now for uh, dealing with the, uh, this problem, problem of mapping between the relational database and the right. domain model. And uh, it's not coming from Microsoft, and lots of people are therefore extremely skeptical using it but uh, I have to say it has been uh, it has been nice to me at least yeah. I think um, I've been successful in uh, applying it and uh, I think we're seeing that uh, quite a lot uh, 
for example, another typical one, of course, is NUnit, but uh, also testdriven.net. Mm-hmm. And lots and lots of people are starting to use that. You know, there's a whole there's a whole another show or a whole debate around object relational mapping and mm-hmm. you know, and whether it scales and whether it's good. Um, you know, yeah. Obviously, you're pretty bullish on it. Well, um, I think I'm pretty pragmatic. If it works for you, you should be happy. If not, yeah. don't use it. So you have to try it out for your own context and your own situation. The uh, classic argument we hear from guys like Ted Neward is that, um, you know, it'll take you so far and mm-hmm. then you'll hit a brick wall. So while everything might seem hunky-dory on the outset of your project, he's seen a lot of projects that fail because uh, the ORM Mapping breaks down, you know, when you need it when you need it most, which is, you know, ten thousand lines of code into your project or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been following uh, Ted's uh, argumentation, and uh, he definitely has a point. Absolutely, but uh, I, I guess uh, since I'm coming from the database uh, mm. background, I I don't think it is such a bad idea to swap to uh, down to the metal. When I really need to, right? I can do that for some parts of my applications if I can uh, get help with eighty percent or something like so that. So you, yeah, you're of the mind if you can take eighty percent of that code off your table, yeah. then yeah, I can I can put band aids on my code. Well, and the point being, I think you hit the same wall with any set of tools. There's a point at which the .NET framework can't help you anymore. If sure. you mm. you know, it's really a question of how big is your app? Where is it going to go? You know that every environment has its limits. You work within those constraints, and everything's fine. When you go too far, yeah, you're going to get into trouble. I, I'm looking at Enhibernate and thinking it's a pretty mature piece of software. It obviously comes from the Java world. It's been ported, but for you've got to think for seventy, eighty percent of the software cases out there, this is enough, and it takes all that baggage of building your relationships between your objects and your databases away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As I said, if if you are happy with the tool, fine, just just go with it. And uh, sooner or later, you will find out that it's not it's not good enough for you. But uh, as you said, that that's the same with every tool. How about code gen, code generation? Yeah, big fan. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I'm I'm going to be a, a big fan of it uh, in the future, but. Uh, so far, I haven't um, haven't really found what I'm looking for, but we are probably going to see extremely interesting things coming in this space. For example, from the intentional software, Charles uh, Simoni hmm. and company. Uh, intentional software, he said. Yeah, yeah, and um, the idea is to to. Uh, Find another language that that is more suitable for your uh, problem. So this whole thing about the uh, cells. So you describe the intent, and you work at the much higher abstraction layer or the right abstraction layer, and not uh, stay with uh, C sharp for everything. And uh, mm. what I've seen from that, and what I've read and heard, uh, that is extremely interesting. We should put a link up on that, I think. Okay. It's also not something for tomorrow, I guess. It's perhaps a year away or more. Have you been uh, playing with the betas of Vista? Uh, no, I haven't, no. Yeah. Unfortunately. I was just, uh, what I was hoping that you might uh, be able to, you know, give give your opinions on if, if you think uh, there's anything cool coming in Vista that's going to help. Uh, you know, certainly the the visualization aspects of uh, the graphics layer in Vista yeah. should be interesting. Uh, I'm afraid I don't know much enough about it, but uh, sure, there is a lot of things going on in that space, absolutely. And uh, I think the appetite uh, from our users are um, quite rapidly increasing. So we we can't just show them those old forms for that much longer. Right. 
But uh, if I can connect this back to domain-driven design, I think if, if we follow that route, we are in the best possible shape for using new and uh, fancier presentation technologies in the future. Right, so because we're well of, uh, uh, Combining the user interface logic with the core uh, domain logic in, uh, in a ball of mud or in, in, in a mess. Yes. If we have the domain uh, code uh, separated, we can just um, put another presentation layer on top of it, of course. Well, uh, hang on a second while I mention that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. So um, some of your favorite designs of applications that you use, do you use the uh, model view controller design a lot? Um, I think, yeah, I'd like to say yes, but the, the truth is uh, probably more no. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, quite often um, working with a colleague, and, and we are doing a split in... Um, in uh, our project, which isn't extremely agile, I guess, but uh, it works very well for us. He's focusing on the user interface, and I'm I'm taking care of the database and the domain model. Wow, so talk about separation. Yeah, and um, as I said, this isn't um, how you should do it uh, if you follow the dogma, but... Uh, yeah, you should use what works for you. And in this case, I think we've been very successful in doing this. Speaking of your successes, um, can you give us any story, any success stories um, of things that you've done personally? Um, my friend uh, that I just mentioned, he is quite often uh, telling people about the certain project we, we've been working on. Because he, he's, he's kind of... Um, bored about databases and he thinks that's the problem <laughs> in every application and uh, he has written so many thousand lines of code and there is no single line that uh, uh, gives you a clue about uh, that there is a database and yeah. so he can really focus on giving the user an extraordinary experience in the application I think that's uh, a good little story I really like it's an interesting idea, building an application that uh, that you never get the sense that all of a sudden there's a commit button where the transaction now takes place and the data gets written. That that goes away. The app just flows. Uh, there's no clear transactional boundaries, per se. Yeah, a little bit. He's been hunting for that, actually, in the application. I think uh, he has invented, he's been inventing some new paradigms for the user interface, at least new to me. Right. But um, at the same time, I'm I'm not sure. I think it's only good. It's good to find those boundaries uh, in the real world, so to say. Well, I think so, the real world has them. You do have discrete units of work. Yeah, you yeah. know, you you buy a pack of gum or you buy a latte. That's a discrete transaction. Yeah. Uh, and people want to know they finished a piece of work. So it's it's useful for them that the application says, okay, that's done. I'm finished with this. I had everything I needed to know. Let's move on to the next thing. Yeah, I agree. Um, so uh, I said there is no sign of database code, but there is sign of, um, as, you, as you just call it, the unit of work. Yeah, the unit of work or the transactional boundary. That's got to exist even whether the database exists or yeah. not. So yeah. I think that's really the way people work. Yeah, because that's very eccentric to... Um, my applications, the unit of work. Uh, the unit happy. of work. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's another area in your book that I was very interested in talking to you about, and that was aspect orientation programming. Uh, maybe 
bring the listener up to speed on what do you mean by uh, aspect orientation? And the idea is to uh, be able to take out those cross-cutting concerns from your code. So it's not polluting your code with, uh, again, things that will more or less distract you. And a very boring and common example, but still I think it's very good, is uh, the example about logging. Right. Every time somebody does something, I want it logged. Exactly. But you don't want to see that code in every method or behind every button. Exactly. You just want it to happen. It's totally uh, uninteresting code when when you are looking for the bug uh, about something and uh, right. when when you want to change something. But uh, still, you'd like that uh, functionality. And uh, aspect orientation is one way of uh, helping you out. And uh, as, as uh, we said before, uh, it's just another tool, and uh, no tool will give you everything. And you can overuse the tool, and uh, yada yada. But, I think uh, another. Another concept that would apply to aspect orientation would be multilingual implementations. You don't want to see the code to to produce the different languages of the text. You just want it to happen. Hmm, that's interesting. I haven't seen that. But, no, uh, I don't know that anyone's actually done it. But it again sounds you know I you, that's tough spaghetti. You know, it's all there. It's very complicated, and you'd really like to have it out of your purview. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I guess I'm not so clear on this. Aspect orientation is, is really about hiding code that you're not interested in? Yeah, you could say that. You, you separate it um, out from your uh, ordinary code. And uh, lots of the design patterns is about that as well. But mm-hmm. aspect orientation is to taking it to the next level, I would say. It's really kind of a declarative model, isn't it? The the idea of in the logging case is every time a method is invoked, I want you to write somewhere who invoked that method, when they did it, and what their settings were. Yeah, good. Good uh, description again. Yeah. So I'm going to declare that separately, and I don't want to see that code in each one of those methods because I just don't want the clutter. I don't want the chance that it's wrong in one place, that it's been mistyped any of those kinds of things. It's consistent throughout the app. I want to pull it out of the app and hold it in a separate can. Yeah, exactly. Jimmy, what, what do you think are the, uh, are the biggest mistakes that people make when uh, sitting down to develop uh, or design a piece of software? Hmm. I think the most common mistake we are doing, and I'm certainly still doing it every day also, is that we think that we understand the problem. It's so simple just uh, doing things like this will solve it. And uh, again and again and again we understand that the problem most often is more complex and uh, or perhaps totally different than we first thought. Well we always figure that out about halfway through building the app. Exactly and at that point we are so stuck in the code that we don't want to throw it away so we end up with something not so nice because we have that old inheritance uh, with, with us right. through the whole uh, project. And it struck me that TDD is really about hitting that 50% point really early, that point where you finally comprehend what the relationship is between the domains, what the sort of business model is, trying to get that happening as soon as possible so that you're not so bogged down in what you've done to get to that point. Exactly, I totally agree. It really forces you to really understand uh, the problem. You can't uh, focus on some uh, interesting techniques and that stuff. You have to focus on the the problem, the core problem. Yeah. Well, and we do love our tools. You know, we want the number of times even I've said, well, I really want to get involved in this app because I think I'm going to get a chance to use this technology on it, which is really a bad way to think. Yeah, I agree. I'm doing that also, but uh, I'm trying to become a better person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another key phrase I I picked out of the uh, the the book was dependency injection, and I know I've heard this a few times. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this because I know it's an important topic. Yeah, it's uh, an interesting topic, and sometimes you get the feeling that that it is very complex that. Uh, 
As a matter of fact, the, the concept is extremely simple. It's uh, just about um, making the dependencies uh, possible to inject from the outside. So instead of having that class uh, being a black box, taking care of its own dependencies, right. you are giving the client or the consumer of that class the responsibility of uh, plugging in the dependencies. So, uh, again, in the past, I, I thought that the black box thing was a good idea. So, uh, this component should be able to take care of itself, I thought. It should uh, find the information about uh, the dependencies in some configuration file and uh, such and such. But I changed my mind, and the driving force is the, the driving force here is once again test driven development. Right. If your component testable. You need to be able to plug in uh, different things for different tests, so to say. And so you need to know what your dependencies are, but your or your test is never going to work. Exactly. Yeah. So th- th- there are so many good things about this uh, change, this mind shift. And one is that uh, your dependencies will be very clear to you. Right. It's not that you can get away from dependencies. It's that you've documented them well, you've coded them well, you've written error messages that identify them well. And you also end up with more generic and reusable code, don't you? Oh, exactly, yeah. So instead of uh, taking uh, lots and lots of effort for being able to reuse a component because of all those uh, strange ways of resolving uh, dependencies, it's simpler for you to just use it and uh, hand them over as the constructor parameters, for example. But uh, that's one piece of it. Then there is uh, uh, the complex part uh, is, is the framework for uh, using this in at deployment time. What I talked about now was more the the way of using dependency injection during development and during test-driven de- uh, development. But uh, perhaps you would like to use uh, a container, such as Spring.net, for example, or de- declaratively describe your de- dependencies and how they should be resolved. And then it becomes a bit more uh, complex. Right. And I think that's where people get stuck a little bit. Uh, but uh, the important thing, I, I would say, is, is rather the, the concept, the simple one, that you should not let the component be a black box. Jimmy, does uh, SQL 2005 help you in your uh, domain-driven efforts in any mm, way? That's an interesting question. And uh, again, I, I don't know if I have investigated it uh, much enough, actually. But... Um, Since we have uh, the possibility of executing uh, C-sharp code in the database engine, at least uh, theoretically it should help us out. But I I think we're pretty much in uh, agreement that we shouldn't overuse that tool. Isn't that so? Yeah, I think so. Uh, You know, I had an interesting uh, discussion with a guy in Miguel Castro's class here last week. Mm -hmm. I was driving him to the airport because he had to leave early, and the person he came with uh, had the car. Right. So we were driving to the airport and, and uh, he lear- upon learning about being able to write code in SQL Server 2005, uh-huh. he said, you know, that just solved all of my problems because that's where I'm going to put all my business logic. And I was like oh. sh- cringing, you know. <laughs> yeah. But he, but, he said, but he basically was of the mindset that, well, I don't have anywhere else I can put it. You know, um, because of the things, because of the way his app was designed and the way he needed to do these things. Okay, yeah. But, um, yeah, I I have that same tentative fear about too much logic in the database. I, I've been pretty much in favor of uh, using uh, Sprocks in the past, but, uh, yeah. CLR-based Sprocks. You know, as much as we've been debating and arguing that this is not a good idea, I've yet to see an app that actually has done it. I'm tempted to build one. (laughs) Just put everything in the database using CLR code to do all that complex functionality just to say, well, there's one and sucked. Right. Because maybe it won't. Maybe it won't. 
You know, maybe it's the maybe it's the greatest application server that's ever existed, and we just have never tried it. If any of our listeners, uh, you know, feel inspired to go and do this and share the results with us, we'd be glad to glad to give you some airtime. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it has been done. Yeah, I'm thinking probably somewhere. Yeah. Uh, one of the topics that you've touched on uh, uh, periodically, and I wonder how closely it ties to DDD, is extreme programming. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we tend to equate TDD and DDD with XP, and I don't know that they're necessarily the same things. They've come around around the same time, but how do you see them related? Mm, yeah, that's another good question. But uh, I think uh, it seems to be pretty much of the, the same uh, communities that uh, enjoy both uh, of those uh, paradigms. I guess right. For them. And uh, let's take an example. I think when we are using, uh, again, test-driven development, which is uh, a core thing of uh, XP, when we are using that, I think at least, uh, uh, actually I'm pretty convinced about that, that we will move in the direction of domain-driven design. We will move in the direction of the domain model pattern. That the XP of, mindset naturally moves you towards this style of development. So. Hmm. I think so, yes. Because, uh, for example, if you go for a more database-focused uh, mindset, you will have a much, much harder uh, experience with TDD. Right. You don't want to uh, touch the database uh, in every test you write, because that will increase the complexity of your test a lot. It's an interesting it, point is that when you do this, you will naturally change your code to the path of least resistance, and that yes. will happen to support this methodology. Good, good description, yes. Yeah, I agree. Jimmy, are you a fan of dynamic languages? Yeah. Uh, once again, I don't have as much experience as I, I'd like to have, but I'm definitely uh, extremely interesting, interested in the Ruby movement, for example. Right. So much energy and many interesting things coming out from there. I was just talking to Scott Hanselman on Hanselman. It's last week, and uh, uh -huh. or I guess by the time this airs, a couple weeks ago. And um, he was talking about how dynamic languages, since they introduce, you know, the the uh, you know, we sort of get back to variant style, yeah. you know, com uh, more of a brain dead compiler kind of thing that you really need to offset that with test-driven development. And yeah. that if you're not using specifically a test-first methodology, you know, write the tests first, you know, test-driven in the true sense of the form, uh, to sort of compensate for the lack of compile checking yeah. that, uh, you, you know, that you may get into trouble with dynamic languages. But we yeah. see C-sharp 3.0, for example, and... Um, uh, you know, the next iterations of Visual Basic becoming more dynamic. Um, yeah. It certainly is going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I think um, we are so used to our um, statically typed languages by now, so mm. we kind of fear that movement. But uh, we should also remember that the compiler is pretty dumb, actually. It's not about semantics at all. Right. Yeah. It's but a syntactical checker, and, and yeah. type enforcement is really a kind of syntax checking. That's all it yeah. is. Yeah. So and I was just thinking this while we were talking about this topic. Is, you know, this is the more advanced way to think. Is It's not about the syntax anymore. It's about the semantics. Yeah. And unless you're dealing with the semantics properly, syntax isn't going to save you anyway. Exactly. I totally agree. It's a false, uh, false safety. And actually, it's in the way a lot. And uh, that kind of um, irritates me right now. <laughs> I've been studying Ruby a little bit. That uh, in my ordinary daytime work, uh, um, yeah, the, the tool is in the way, way too much. I guess you could think of TDD as a semantics compiler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Instead of a syntax, well, certainly a semantical validator checker, right? Accumulating these tests to prove that this is really what you want to do, right? 
something uh, strikes me now that it, it would be very fun. We, we are talking about uh, test-driven development a lot, uh, and I get the feeling that you like it too, but I still have this feeling that it is rarely used. Do you have a feeling? I tend to agree, absolutely. It's definitely... And I think about the way we treated object-oriented development in the early days, where everybody talked about it, but not a lot of people did it. I think we're in the same place with TDD right now. Well, and this is my concern I expressed to Scott over dynamic languages, is that, you know, if if TDD is is such a big requirement to compensate Mm -hmm. for this lack of compile checking, compile time, you know, type checking, you know, what's going to, is this going to prevent people from moving into dynamic languages because they're, you know, they're not going to be dragged into test-driven development? I mean, there's a lot of people who will completely resist it. Yeah. Yeah. A year ago, I thought um, the .NET community had um, made a shift, very many at least. And I I spoke at a conference and I had uh, 100 in the audience, I think, and uh, very uh, advanced audience, in my opinion, and uh, asked who ma- how many of them uh, were using TDD, and only two of them uh, raised their hands. Both of them were my friends, so perhaps they did it to be nice to me. I don't know. But well, I think it flies it- in the face of productivity, and you know, when you have a boss who's focused on the bottom line, yeah, um, it's more expensive to do. I'm not sure. I actually think it increases the productivity. Um, not day one, perhaps, but over the whole project, I think I get more productive. Right. I don't. I don't have those big. Uh, I'm not falling down or what you call it. I'm. I'm just uh, proceeding slowly. All the time. Now I remember the, exactly the same kind of debate and exactly the same kind of issues around calm talking about building good distributed COM implementations and then asking the room, how many people here have built a class and only two people putting up their hand? Yeah. You know, we I, I think we keep getting into this boat. We're going to develop these languages and the methodology and the methodologies to use them. And then we're going to run into the issue of people are going, they're very interested. They're not doing it yet. And they're going to do things in the wrong order. They're definitely going to adopt the language before they adopt the methodology. I think that's inevitable. And then they find out why the methodology came too. You need that part. Yeah, that's good. Hmm. But or uh, sometimes I get the feeling that perhaps uh, I'm on the wrong track here. Perhaps uh, TDD sucks. (laughs) uh, They are smart. This isn't right. I don't know. I don't. I mean, I'm joking, of course. I'm, I'm. I really like it, so at least it's good for me. Right. Well, like uh, this is. We're coming to the close of the of the session, Jimmy. And um, one thing I like to ask uh, all my guests is: Is there some kind of tool or website or or toy or something that you've been playing around with lately that's piquing your interest? Hmm. Actually. Mention something else first. Uh, I was a little bit afraid that you would put the evil uh, mark on me tonight, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't do that. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's why why I'm nervous. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, let's see. Um, actually, I, I've been having a, a pretty long vacation, uh, so I've, I've mostly been at the beach for a couple of weeks now. And uh, that feels uh, way too ungeeky. Yes. Mentioned. All right. The yeah. beach. Anyway, um, <laughs> some things. I think people should have a look at Ruby. Isn't that uh, a good, good sure. thing to spend some some time on? I think so. Yeah. If yeah. you haven't seen it, uh, Ruby on Rails, especially, is pretty pretty compelling stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It the will... ASP of the twenty first century. <laughs> Want to build a web app in a hurry? Here's the way. Yeah. Without uh, getting that uh, crappy stuff we got when we used ASP. Yeah. Want- but you know, the time when ASP came along, it was a miraculous language. The ugliness didn't come until we actually used it. Mm. That's true. Yeah. Um, but uh, it didn't really help us use it very well, I think. No, I think we used it fairly badly, and it was a tool well-designed to be used badly. <laughs> uh, I, I think 
I think um, people should have a look at Link uh, definitely also. That's, uh, that yeah. will be extremely important for the future, not just for data access. It will, it will be important in many, many situations. I agree. The book is Applying Domain-Driven Design in Patterns. Our guest is Jimmy Nilsson. His blog, www.jnsk.se slash weblog. Jimmy, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And uh, good luck. And we'll see you next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a toy boy, let me